Hello, welcome to episode 23 of Anatomy of Tone. In this week's podcast, I'm going to interview music therapist Sophie Woods. It would be interesting to talk to people from all different realms of the music industry. And sometimes we tend to just think of musicians that play in clubs or musicians that are recording artists or teachers. And we don't realize that there's many different avenues to pursuing music as a career. After I was done with the interview with Sophie, we actually talked a little bit about the choices of the different avenues we could make in the music careers. And she realized at a certain point that touring or uh, being a music teacher wasn't the path that she wanted to follow, but she loved music and wanted to be engaged with music somehow. And then uh, I think just had the interest to help people and was able to combine her interest and love for music with her love and interest in trying to help people and offer them assistance. I also thought it would be a great idea to interview Sophie to make people aware of some various treatments that are available and might work well for you as a means to communicate your struggles. If you're digging this podcast, if you can leave me a review online, it'd be really helpful to the podcast. And you could find me at anatomyofguitartone.com if you're interested in discussing any kind of lessons from guitar, bass, drums, music theory, composition. If you want to learn counterpoint, you can reach out to me there and we can discuss in more detail what your interests or goals may be. Let's jump into the interview. Welcome, Sophie Woods, to the podcast. Hi, Sophie. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you doing? So I want to Good. start off with maybe just some very basic stuff. So I've been in music my whole career since mm-hmm. I was like five or six years old. And I, I, I'll fully admit, I don't really know much about what music therapy is. It's a pretty new concept to me, even though I think as a personal level of being an artist, musician, I understand how music is somewhat therapeutic to me. Mm-hmm. But I, I think after having a conversation with you the other day, that it opened up a world that there's so much I don't even understand about how it affects or can treat anxiety and so many other things. So if maybe we could start with an overview of just what is music therapy? Yeah. So to give you the more formal definition of music therapy, it's the evidence-based use of music and music interventions to reach certain clinical goals. Mm -hmm. So I work in inpatient psychiatry So the way that I use music therapy is going to be different than uh, someone who works in more of a medical setting or education setting. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I'll try to give a bit of an overview of how it works in these different settings with these different populations, but also talk a bit more from my experience working in psychiatry. Okay, great. How come we haven't heard about music therapy so much? Is is, is it... uh... Been, it's been, have they been considering it for science for a while and it's hard to get through to the mainstream medical industry that this is accepted as being valid? Yeah, I mean, I think there's really no one answer to that question. It's a really good question. And it's something that I am often asking myself, why are we not as represented as other forms of therapy or psychotherapy? I think a big issue is advocacy. When you work in a field that isn't super well represented or, and I shouldn't say we're not well represented. We have, we have lots of good advocates and lots of good representation, but within the whole therapy world, it kind of 
falls by the wayside sometimes. I think that when you work in a field that a lot of people don't totally know about or understand, you get kind of burnt out always explaining to people what you do for a living. Yeah, totally. And I, yeah. I've talked to a few music therapist friends quite recently who have said, I'm just over it. I, I can't do it anymore. For me, I mean, I grew up in a pretty small town, way upstate New York, and I realized even prior to going to college and studying this, that this was something I was going to have to do. I was going to have to constantly advocate. And the importance of it, I realize now, is that we're not only advocating for our field, we're advocating for the people that we serve. Exactly. And right, that's right. really the reason why we have to do that. Um, I think too, and you'll, you'll probably be able to relate to this or understand this as a musician, but the arts are not always accepted or considered career paths, right? It's sort of like, oh, music is your hobby. It's great that you have music as an outlet. There's even this kind of assumption that when you mention music therapy, it's like, oh, that's my commute in the morning is when I put my earbuds in and that's my music therapy for the day. So there, there's kind of this discounting it as something that it's not or that it's, oh, well, that's just, you know, you do that yourself or music therapy is kind of this buzzword as opposed to an actual field or profession. So getting that through to people that, yeah, there are people that work in the arts and that the arts are healing and people have been using the arts to heal and connect and since the beginning of time i mean that's the fascinating thing about it some people might think that this is like a new treatment or a new methodology for for helping people but i mean music has been bringing people joy for many lives has been helping them through despair uh it, it was one of the earliest forms of communication so it seems strange that now it's like we have to to or even you have to advocate for it to be considered as to make people aware even that it's there that to, to lean on or that they could it could help them with maybe what, what is bothering them or, or struggles. Right. And I know this is kind of a long answer to a sort of short question. But again, you know, like I said, there's really no one answer to this. I think that when you hear something like music therapy, again, it's considered something that's probably not really backed by science, but we do have so much evidence that this works. It is an evidence-based practice. And I'll talk a little bit about brain structures and how music engages the brain. That's what's frustrating to me is that we have so much evidence for it. Uh, but that's something that we have to keep doing is talking about that and, and making sure people know that there is the evidence and there is the science here to, to back it up. Yeah. And I would bet, I'm sure there's science to back this up too, but I'm yeah. betting there's a lot of people that really can benefit from music therapy that either don't have access to for it because I'm and I think when I listened to that lecture you did that it's been a difficult road to make sure that insurance is covering music therapy for people so there's a whole demographic of people that that don't have access or the, the funds to be able to afford um, the, a type of therapy that could be very beneficial for them right or, or mm -hmm. there's also a lot of people that aren't even aware it exists yeah, yeah. And that's something that's also really important to me is that music therapy is so accessible for so many people. And, and I can get into this a little bit more later, but the first example that comes to mind is that I worked with someone who had a language processing disorder. Hmm. So working in talk psychotherapy could have been a very frustrating experience for her because you're developing these sentences and explaining how your your emotions feel both somatically and within the mind and then you're also listening to the feedback from your therapist 
And that's, that's a lot of work when you are someone who has this language processing disorder to have a means for expressing emotion non-verbally is huge because it makes psychotherapy so much more accessible then. Right, right. Yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. It almost gets rid of some of the barriers between communication, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and music can be so many things at once and it can shift and morph into different things. Mm -hmm. And we don't always experience just one emotion at a time. If I'm excited about something or I'm really looking forward to something, I can also have anxiety that's paired with that optimism. Right. And that can kind of be a difficult thing to put into words. Uh -huh. I'm really, really, really anxious and I'm, or we shut down. How do I, how do I talk about that? Or I'm so anxious and maybe you've got the butterflies in the stomach. You become a little bit somatically preoccupied. How do you fully express the range of that? Music therapy gives you the space to explore this entire range of emotion and feeling and human experience because music can, it allows for so many different things to be happening at once and to pull so many different elements in. It's also fascinating to me with music, like how it threads through every culture. I know before I think, I don't know if it was near the, the end of Leonard Bernstein's uh, life, but he really got into researching children's songs through all different cultures throughout time. Oh, wow. And he found a, a couple of things that were very interesting. They all shared very similar melody lines, despite coming from, from cultures that were using microtonal systems or different tuning systems. Oh, wow. They all shared very, they, like the melody lines are really similar to each other. It's strange to me to think that that in times where people were very disconnected, it wasn't like we had the internet or people were even traveling quickly by airplane to another mm -hmm. place that somehow on some level were tapped into something that we feel certain emotions and, and they're similar things like like more excitement throughout cultures, faster tempos, mm -hmm. right? More major sounding intervals and yeah. sadness through cultures tend to be slower tempos or more minor sounding tonalities. and. And I don't know if you ever finished the research. I think there's some lectures. His lectures are amazing online. I didn't even know he did this. This yeah. is really cool. Yeah, yeah, somebody just told me about this recently. And I, I, I didn't know that he really got into it that wow. way. But he got really deep into it. And it's pretty fascinating like, to, to have that realization of the, the thread, almost which is, is more universal than languages, like even itself, that, mm. that you can play something upbeat to somebody in, from a different part of the world that you don't speak the same language, but they all will understand the feeling mm -hmm. of that more than you will trying to find different ways to use a word to try to get them to understand. Yeah, yeah. I told you I nerded out and I came with literature, but that ties so well into this. It's from a journal music therapy from 2017. So there, there was a study that was done on music and facial emotion recognition in people with autism spectrum disorder. So something that can often present a challenge for people with autism spectrum disorder is recognizing facial emotion or saying that's maybe a sad affect, that's a brighter, happier affect. But they, when they did the study with children, they, they actually found that with music, they were able to listen to, I believe it, it says even a four bar portion of music and go, oh, that feels happy or this feels 
little scary, a little, yeah, there's things that we pick up on in music or that you can live on the other side of the world from somebody and still go, right. this evokes some sort of sadness yeah. in me. Yeah. yeah. Can you talk about how you use music therapy in, in your practice and yeah. the cycle? What What is tech? I'm sorry, I'm just messing up the name of, of actually the field that the specialty that you're in. So you're so I'm a psychiatric music therapist. Psychiatric music. So I work in inpatient psychiatry. This has been my my whole career up until this point. I really don't see it changing. I love psychiatry. I feel that it's for I mean for centuries it's been it's been a population in a field that has not always been treated fairly. And I think that something that makes it so unique is and something that I take really seriously is that through music therapy, I also feel I have a responsibility to not only address the symptoms and the life experiences, but also the stigma attached to mental health. Because we have people that come in who are really, really struggling. We see people sometimes at their lowest and as hard as that can be to work with, it's, it's a privilege to be able to see these sort of raw, very human experiences and give people the tools to work through that. So a lot of the work I do is in groups. That's how a lot of inpatient psychiatric units are are structured, but I do individual uh, work with people. I work a lot in an improvisational model because I feel that that's really what gives people the opportunity to fully express what is going on for them. So we have people with wide variety of of diagnoses schizophrenia bipolar disorder some people with, with major depressive disorder so all across the board and symptoms can present very differently for people so you're sometimes getting groups uh, of of patients who are in really different places emotionally and i invite people to come into the room i do a lot of work with percussion because it's very accessible and it's a little less daunting than putting out a stringed instrument right, or a keyboard and being like, and sometimes yeah. like certain stringed instruments are very, they don't sound good for a while. Like guitar, you yeah. pick up a guitar, it takes a while for it to sound pleasing. It's a, exactly. It's very discouraging at first. Exactly. And there's, there's almost, when you, when you put that in front of someone before anything starts, it's sort of this pressure of, oh, I, I got to take a minute to figure this out. Right, right, right. right. The reason I really value working within an improvisational model is that so the the prefrontal cortex of the brain that's what deals with your decision making and your judgment and all those things in a particularly anxious brain that's the part of the brain that's working in overdrive because I have to be second guessing everything and overthinking and making sure that everything I do is a certain way when you're improvising there's really no time to do that so it's the stream of consciousness way of expressing what's going on. And it's a your way of doing that. That part of your brain can't multitask, right? It can only do one thing at a time. I don't know how true that is. I brush up my neuroscience a little bit. But the way that the brain or that part of the brain is, is working or what it's responsible for. When you're improvising, you're doing everything moment by moment. There's really no time to think ahead or plan right, or, or over plan right. or, or overthink or overanalyze. Forces you to stay present. Like Forces always, you to stay yeah. present. Right. Yeah. And I've been here plenty of times where I end up in these anxiety spirals where I'm not paying attention to anything that's going on in the moment. I'm worried about 
tomorrow, next week, next month, next oh, year. Yeah. yeah, I have severe yeah. anxiety, so I know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So having those moments where you're able to improvise really requires you to be in the present moment. What I find so unique about and so valuable when it comes to improvisation and music therapy is that unlike traditional talk psychotherapy and I'll make a lot of comparisons to other forms of, of therapy. It's no way to knock it. I just think that talk psychotherapy is the default. That's where everyone's brain goes to when they, when they, when we talk about psychotherapy. So I'm never knocking and I'm just kind of making some comparisons right. to how we typically think about it, but it's a conversation. So conversation wouldn't really work very well if you and I were both talking to each other at the same time, right? If you went to therapy and your therapist was talking over you while you were trying to to talk to them, it would be a little bit frustrating. But in an improvisational music or music therapy approach, I can be doing this and I can be giving you that like home base, that foundation for you to express. I'm creating this container uh-huh. for you to tell me everything that you need to say, to express everything that needs to be expressed because silence is, it can be daunting. Right. But it's this way of forging this therapeutic relationship based on we are right here literally together at the same time and I got you and I'm holding this therapeutic space for you. And it's it's this interesting thing too where it's sort of like, I'm not going to ask you to do anything I'm not willing to do myself. Right, right. And it builds this trust. Mm-hmm. And when this improvisation is taking place, I, I think I've used the term stream of consciousness a few times, it's very embodied. You're bringing the body and the mind into this experience in order to convey what you need to say without saying it verbally. But I also feel, too, it does kind of streamline those feelings, those thoughts. So if we do feel it's time to bring some elements of talking and using some verbal skills together, we can. You've kind of put all of this out into the open. We can process it verbally if we need to. Mm -hmm. It's so interesting to me because I think I've been dealing with severe anxiety probably since I was in my, well, it's been a part of my life longer than I realized it was, but when I realized it was a problem was my early twenties and, and I would go through periods and I know that when I didn't, when I'd go through periods where I didn't have a lot of time to compose, then it was more problematic than if I was composing all the time. And I never understood why or what the connection was. I was just like, okay, well, music just puts me at peace. So Mm -hmm. do this. Right. And I need that time. And somehow it was the time (laughs) where I guess I realized that I was, I don't know if rationalizing or just coming to terms with things or, or just kind of what's the word I'm trying to organize in my brain or mm-hmm. whatever it was. I, I noticed that that would happen because a lot of the compo- composition process is improvising, right? You start mm-hmm. from that place and you're using that part of your brain. You, and I noticed that I would be more relaxed when I was doing that, but I didn't ever know why that would be the case. It requires right? you to be so present. Right. So present. Yeah. 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 And I've, I've noticed too when I'm improvising or I'm improvising with a patient. I mean, especially with a patient, I can't be on another planet. I have to be there with them. I have to be listening and, and, and reflecting what they're doing and, and creating this foundation for them to be able to express. But even in my own time or when I'm, I'm fiddling around at home, 
on on guitar I might have feelings going into the improvisation I may have moments where I reflect on it after where I feel oh this could have been different but when you're doing it it's kind of like that's where your focus is at huh yeah mm-hmm. it's interesting I think like I felt sometimes I have a very delayed reaction to emotions Mm-hmm. So sometimes it allows me to get through traumatic events or whatever if I need to. I can mm-hmm. focus in that moment, but then I have like the aftershocks from it. And sometimes I don't even know it's bothering me for a while. Mm-hmm. And I've realized that sometimes that comes out in my composition during that time period. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That that's almost been like, I, I haven't, I almost didn't know it was bothering me sometimes or hitting me until I was in that moment of, of, of being in that improvisational state of just kind of like letting letting it speak. I don't know if that has to do with being unguarded or just being in a space where you're allowing it to happen. Or, yeah. Uh, I definitely yeah. sense that. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think too, there's, we have these different structures of the brain that have these certain purposes. And one of my most favorite graduate classes I took was a, was a course on music in the brain where it talked about some neuroscience applications. And I, I did, I think I did my final paper on that class on epigenetics and intergenerational trauma, which is largely unexplored in the music therapy world, but I think there's there's potential for that. But one of the the assignments we had was to study each part of the brain, the way that that, that part of the brain functions and how music engages those parts of the brain. So the the three structures of the brain that I find most fascinating when it comes to to music therapy be like the hippocampus so that's your memory processing part of your Mm -hmm. brain and it helps connect music to memory and music and memory are so deeply connected this is why you're seeing people with alzheimer's who who are sitting upright when they hear familiar music they're able to engage some of them who have gone completely nonverbal are able to sing recognize people in their lives people who haven't been able to recognize their children in months from song years yeah yeah Uh, because it's waking up that part of the brain oh it's like it it stimulates it's like a it's like the new a mnemonic or sort of like a memory system to be Mm -hmm. able to bring back whatever's associated with that sound the two really great examples of this in pop culture i think have been glenn campbell and tony bennett so they both had some form of dementia or alzheimer's Glenn Campbell was, I believe there was a, there was some sort of televised documentary about this, but he did a last tour, a last few performances and he was touring with his kids, I think. Yeah. And sometimes wasn't able to remember them or was having a difficult time adjusting to the changes of being on the road, but they put him on stage and he was playing guitar beautifully and mm-hmm. what an underrated guitar player oh he was, i know he's one of the yeah. best and then he's so awesome. many people don't know yeah 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 and was i mean as soon as that music kicked in he was there he was with his kids and what a gift to be able to give his family too mm-hmm. and, and and to him to be present with one another in those last few months or years uh, and and me, going back to what you're talking about with the the study with Leonard uh, Bernstein and or was it Leonard Cohen or Leonard uh, Bernstein? Bernstein, Bernstein Bernstein I always mess it up which one of those do I think it's Bernstein. Bernstein okay okay yeah what you were saying with Leonard Bernstein is music is that thing that we you know you can be so different or so far from someone you know mentally or even physically and it's the one thing that that connects you mm-hmm. Tony Bennett more recently 
that was another thing where they had to keep reminding him, okay, you're going on stage in Radio City. And, oh, I didn't know that about Tony. I mean, I knew minutes. he was had some ailments at the end of his life, but I didn't yeah. realize it was Alzheimer's or dementia. Was it Alzheimer's? Or? I think it was Alzheimer's. Okay. Yeah. And there's this really great clip where he's on stage and the curtain goes up and he's like, okay, I'm at Radio City and the music kicks on and he's fine. And he had that really beautiful friendship and collaboration with Lady Gaga. Mm -hmm. And I don't think he was able to recognize her or really remember her. And she walked on stage and he goes, it's Lady Gaga. And it was like this moment of the music had really brought him back into the present. It was amazing. Wow. I um, didn't know that part of it. I yeah. knew that they, I, I've heard that music is the last thing to go in your, your memory as an Alzheimer patient. But yeah. I didn't know that it, it also, I mean, it makes sense to me, but I didn't mm -hmm. realize that it brought back mm -hmm. other memories. I mean, it makes sense. I guess when we grow up, if we hear a song that we grew up with, it brings back a flood of memories of the year that that song came out or where you were when you first heard that song. Yeah. Or yeah. Uh, I, I had an interesting experience with my grandpa when I was a kid where his, his parents both died when he was very young and kind of had some, some trauma from that and being separated from his siblings after their passing. I never heard anything really about my, my great grandparents at all. It was a very tough thing for him to speak about, I think. And I don't know if we were watching TV together, or if something came on the radio, or if we were listening to music. And there was a trumpet, and it was just kind of, he had this moment. It was the first and only time I ever heard him speak about his mother. And they had been renting an apartment above this trumpet player who just played scales all the time. And he was telling me, he goes, Oh my gosh, I remember much that got on my mother's nerves and he I, the he was just so blissed out I mean the look on his face talking about his mother and this memory of her being I think at the time was a single mother her, her husband had passed and taking care of five kids and just being so annoyed at this trumpet player living underneath them and just playing scales all day and that I felt so connected to him in that moment that he he shared that with me and I, I'd never other than that, I had never heard anything from him about his mother. And that was really interesting to me. But it was like something in his brain just kicked in and was like, yeah. I mean, and he was all there, but he, he, he right, didn't. Right, but somebody yeah. was put in a place to yeah. that almost disengaged the pain for a moment and was able to actually just yeah. kind of live back in that moment and yeah. and enjoy the memory. Yeah, and and talking about memory deficits in music therapy and how all this works it's also a good opportunity to talk about what's not music therapy because there are like I said there are the people that go oh yeah my music therapy is on my commute home listening to music or right. that's when I sit at home and I, I play guitar and it's great and I have and that can that can be therapeutic in its own right we have these experiences with music that we're entitled to I mean these really sacred moments where it's just us and our music and, mm -hmm. and we get to have that but there was a documentary maybe 10 years ago now, maybe longer than that, called Alive Inside. And it's, it's a well-done documentary, but it's, it's about bringing in iPods and MP3 players into nursing homes mm -hmm. and how music was able to engage the brain enough for people to come out of these all nearly vegetative states and be able to engage and, and, and sing and recall 
their past and what, what life was like for them and be able to engage with family members. And that's, that's great. It's awesome to, to have that, but it's not music therapy because therapy relies on the therapeutic relationship between the therapist and the patient. And when you are working with someone as a music therapist, you're working with someone who is in that state where they're not remembering anything. They're in bed all day. They're, they're very disconnected and shut down. It would be jarring to go in the room, turn on a song at like regular tempo, right? Music therapists can go in there and we're trained to listen to breathing sounds and heart rate and entrained to what they are doing. Entrainment is right. such a huge part of music therapy, no matter the, the population you're working with. Mm-hmm. And if someone is breathing really slow and just waking up, I can adjust that music. I can even adjust the time signature, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I can take something that's in 4-4 four, four and shift it to 3-4 or 6-8 to almost feel like a little bit more like a lullaby, like this rock uh-huh. feeling in the music. Right. You're you curating know. the experience, but yeah. you're interacting because you're, yeah. you're making an assessment of what, what environment you're in. It's not random. You're, you're observing and saying, well, right. this isn't how I'm going to. And I can stop as I'm going and I can, I can, I can keep playing or accompanying myself on guitar and saying, what's coming up right now? Who are we singing for? Who do you feel connected to when we have this experience in music together? Do you have together? like a set list or do you improvise and make songs up on the spot? Or how are you deciding what material to play if, if you're visiting somebody? So in in my setting in psychiatry, it's all purely improvised, basically based on mood. So I, I'll do a check-in sometimes with patients and say, how are we feeling today? And, and I'll, sometimes they get very low mood. I'm very restless. I'm very anxious. I want to, I want to go home. I'm ready to go home. Some of them are dealing with crazy side effects from medication and listening to the pace at which they're talking that sometimes sets the tempo for how we're going to improvise. Or if someone is deeply depressed and it took every fiber of their being to pull themselves out of bed, I'm not going to be off to the races when, when we start. Um, when you have a when you have a patient who comes in and is ready to play, sometimes they they kind of set the tone for the music and they're able to start and you just listen. But it's all based on where the patient is at. Mm-hmm. So there's several clinical improvisation courses that you have to take as a music therapist to understand how to in the moment say this is my chord progression I'm going to use. This is the mode I'm going to play in. These are the elements that I need to bring in in order in order to meet the patient where they are and train to, you know, what they're playing, how they're feeling. And, yeah, so it's all really spontaneous. There are also the the cases where someone will come in and say, this is a song that's really, really meaningful to me. Mm-hmm. And we might recreate that together. We might play that together, maybe have a discussion about, what does the lyrical content mean to you? What does, how does the music register for you? How does it feel? Are there, are there portions of this that make you feel a certain way? But then when you're working within that recreative model, there's also opportunities to say, this is a song that's really meaningful. What would it be like to take ownership over this piece of music and change it and rewrite it to match your lived experience? 
that can be a really powerful thing for someone. Right. Yeah. And it's something that they get to keep with them too. Mm. After the hospitalization is over, after we, we terminate our therapeutic relationship that exists within the hospital, they get to have that. Mm-hmm. And that can be really important. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Totally. It's empowering. Mm-hmm. It's right. For them yeah. to have been able to express their experience and mm-hmm. have a connection to feel like they've actually, they've done something. Yeah. Good to a, yeah. Mm-hmm. And even with improvisation too, I think that I talked about using a lot of percussion. Percussion is great because rage, anger, aggression can all be put into your music in that way. Yeah. And that, that feeling like that tactile experience of wailing on a drum can be really rewarding because you're taking anger or rage, something that society likes to tell us is kind of an ugly thing, right? Our, our rage is not really welcome in, in many right, you know, social settings. Right, but in the human experience. Yeah, so to deny yeah. it's there is a little, a, a, it could be very problematic because people just explode, I think, sometimes because it's just oh the, my gosh, the idea yeah. of suppressing it and like, and and I think that's been a problem with just I think the the lack of respect or appreciation for 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 mental health care in this country period is mm-hmm. that we're just going to push it under the carpet and yeah. it doesn't make it go away and it makes yeah. people not get help and it makes people have episodes or mm-hmm. I think some of the things we're seeing are are people a lot of times that some of the, some of the stuff in the news are things people that needed help and it just didn't they didn't get it yeah yeah it. Yeah. yeah or didn't feel safe enough to ask for the right. help. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the stigmas that come with the it, stigma. You know, like, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and I've had, I never really thought of this, and I had a patient say to me recently, "I am afraid to show my rage to certain people within the hospital because I'm afraid they'll keep me here longer." Uh huh. And this was someone who was in music therapy every day, and drumming was a really big thing for them. And I think it's this way of taking anger and rage and aggression and putting it into something that you can be proud of, uh-huh. which right. we really, I mean, we can't often say that about our anger and our rage. Right. There's, there's a shame thing with it where it's because like you said, we suppress it. Mm-hmm. And then when it kind of boils over, it's this feeling of, I'm really ashamed of how I reacted mm-hmm. or I really regret expressing my anger in this way. And instead it's this experience of I was really angry, so angry that I probably couldn't put it into words, which is where music therapy really comes into yeah. play. But now I've created something that's turned this anger into something I can feel good about. And that's that changes everything. Well, that's the thing. Nobody ever yeah. offers a solution or I mean, I know there are solutions, but it's not very public of, of ways to turn anger into productivity, right? Mm-hmm. Or rage. It's like, oh, you just have to, whoa, whoa, you're not like everybody else, but you are. And and so if I think people are given the idea, like, okay, you're experiencing this, maybe you're experiencing it on a higher level than somebody else is, but here, why don't you turn this in, <clears throat> into, the, right? I know a while ago I saw, I think it was in New York City, but there was like some place that opened up. And basically it's you go in there and you pay and they give you some goggles and you could smash like old <laughs> TVs those. and like computers and stuff. And like, yeah. it was like, just like people were just kind of letting their, some people were doing it for fun, but I think some people were going in there just like, they just needed to like yeah. blow off some steam and feel better. Cause they're angry about whatever was bothering them in their lives. You know? Yeah. And then there's, there are bands that kind of have this air of like, they're really angry. Rage Against the Machine is rage is the name of the band. 
but it's so powerful and there's a certain experience that you have when listening to it where it dawns on you that these are people who are who feel really really strongly about something and there's there's anger and there's rage in here but it's this anger and rage that's about something and it's right. about, and i i'm kind of always baffled by people who come and say well this was the stuff my parents always told me i couldn't or shouldn't listen to because it would make me angry right and sometimes music is the thing that allows us to feel less of a sense of otherness yeah. that makes sense yeah okay there's someone else who's just as pissed about something as i am and it feels really good to know that i'm not alone in that yeah exactly totally but that's the other thing too when you're working with a music therapist i can be in that rage with you i can reflect that rage back to you uh-huh. in my music and we can have this experience where it's like feels really good that we're, we're filling up the space with this. I, I oh, it's always, like you're going through it together. Yeah. As I suppose I imagine sometimes with like talk therapy that you feel like you're just explaining your experience to somebody mm -hmm. else who's listening, mm -hmm. but sometimes going through something together with somebody feels yeah. a little more comforting and, and like you've shared something and oh, yeah. you get what I'm feeling. And yeah, there's a container for that anger. Right, you know, right. bring it on. I got it. And I can reflect it back to you if you need me to, or I can kind of be this grounding presence while you're having this angry experience. Yeah. Yeah. One quick question, because I knew you were saying there's three parts of the brain. So that was the one was the hippocampus, oh, right? But hippocampus. Yeah. One like quick question <laughs> that came up. I was telling my, my, my blues class I teach at the Brooklyn Conservatory last night. I was telling them about the improvisation conversation we had. Yeah. And one of the questions that they, they asked was, what, how does it work for people that might have a fear of improvisation or fear of, of being on stage or performing? Mm -hmm. so how does it work the same way once they start improvising? Does it, does it quell the, the anxiety or how, how does that work? Oh, so yeah, like more the, the prefrontal cortex it can be the, the part of the brain that we experience that overthinking indecisiveness. I deal with that every day because there are so many people who come into music therapy with this. Well, if I'm going to do music, it has to be good, right? It, it's tough because it, the experience is going to be different for everybody. You can come in with this crippling anxiety that keeps you from, from wanting to engage in the music. There are some people who I'll say, why don't you come and listen and just be an observer? And a lot of times what I'll say is, what would the point in making music be if there weren't people there to listen and that kind of is a way to bring people into the experience sure, without forcing it. yeah there are times where I will play and I'll try and hold that therapeutic space by call it holding technique going between one or or, or two chords at a time so this kind of back and forth like this rocking sensation like I'm here you're being held in the music you can contribute what you want. If not, that's fine. Mm -hmm. I'm still going to be here and do that. There are some people, too, where you have to use those verbal skills that we were trained to have, even as creative arts therapists, where you, you I had a discussion with um, a patient today who had years of classical music training and was very anxious to come into a room where they'd be playing something that wasn't written on a piece of paper. Oh, right, right, right. Because their world yeah. so much was based around yeah. the, the strict I, like reliance or, mm -hmm. or of comfort in like, it's secure. I know what I'm going to do. Yeah. So 
that is an instance where you have to just say what is going to be most clinically beneficial. And I will say, well, when we are conditioned to think that music has to be good, coming into a space where you're not really sure what you're doing, you haven't rehearsed, can be really daunting. But can I challenge you to think about music just within the therapeutic space is something that we're going to focus on the experience of it, not the outcome of it. Can you do that for me today? That can change things a little bit. It's really interesting you brought that up because I feel like it's, it's the way that we approach music sometimes can be pretty toxic within our current culture. And I don't know when that happened. I, I, I would be curious to see some studies if that happened around the time that fame became such a big thing with the arts or this godlike status. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm curious because at one time it was so much a cultural thing, more a cultural thing. Pre-TV, people had t- uh, pianos in their houses. Yeah. And even if they just played yeah. a little bit and they sat around the piano, that's what they did for entertainment. Mm-hmm. And not everybody was really great at music, but it was something that they did and they engaged with. And it felt like music was much more threaded throughout society. And it wasn't, there wasn't so much this pressure that it was like, okay, well, you can't suck. And I feel like I meet a lot of people now and it just feels like there's this pressure that there's this standard that is unrealistic, first of all, Mm -hmm. Uh, even amongst people that are masters at their craft, it's a little unrealistic. And, Mm -hmm. and we put it on people who maybe you're even just like, just trying to do it to have something that they enjoy doing. It's like, it's, it's not really super acceptable to be a a hobbyist musician. It's like people look down at people for that. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, oh, you're, you're just an amateur. You're a starving artist. Yeah. Like as if there's not a function for that within like the whole spectrum of what art and means. It's interesting. I guess it's more just a a comment of of how I feel like I have to fight a lot with my, I not fight with them, but I have to fight with the the system a little bit too, with my students a lot to say, let's, let's forget about like what the perception is of success. And success is really a big one that comes up for artist because what it means now versus what it means 30 years ago is completely different so different yes so yeah and what is success and what isn't success and what isn't even realistic what was realistic or attainable 30 years ago is not now you know and so right and and also i mean i think this kind of ties into what you're saying too is that what we perceive as being good and perfect and successful is often not an organic thing i mean we exactly live in the age of auto-tune and a lot of things that you can do it's like fantasy. It's like doing a fantasy yeah. film where you, it, yeah. it, it looks amazing, like Lord of the Rings. I mean, that's not a real a, a de- depictation of, yeah. is that, how do I say that word? Depictation? Yeah. <laughs> what is that word? Depiction? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. Think? Depiction? Think. Yes. Yeah. Of of real life, right? Right. So I feel like when we hear a lot of, a lot of music and there's nothing wrong with that aesthetic, but I think sometimes it changes people's perception of what they expect things to sound real like. Yeah. Yeah. And, and when you say, you know, what is, what is real life when the music that we're listening to doesn't have that certain rawness of what it maybe had 30, 40, 50 years ago, there, there's less emphasis on music as a reflection of lived experience. Yeah. Right. Yes, yeah. exactly. And, and, and I think too, I'm always kind of confused. I, I, I try to not say that I think music is is bad or good or, oh, yeah, or place either. a label yeah. on it. I'm not particularly always moved by some of the music that I hear now as I am with some of the music that I grew up listening to or that, you know, I, I'm always kind of 
I think it's weird. Like I, I I'm always going back and and finding new old music in a way. <laughs> but I, I'm very, I'm very moved by that. But I think it's, I'm confused about why. I don't know how to phrase this without sounding like a jerk. <laughs> there's so there's a lot of interesting social stuff happening right now, and there has been for the past ten ish years. There's not really any musical commentary on that in the way that there was in the 60s. Yeah, I think the over-corporatization of the music industry. There's only yeah. three major labels now. A lot of those things, it's almost become like a conveyor line. So at a yeah. time, I feel like we're artists. Not all artists. I mean, there was always a need for, for I don't know, like fluff. Yeah, fluff is like a, a maybe a negative term, but maybe mm. somewhat superficial or just light music, light content. Yeah. Like, and that we need to have that. That's that you can't, everything can't be dark and serious. Absolutely. Right? But yeah. I think what's happened over the years is as more of the money machine has gotten involved in their fewer yeah. labels. And now it's just like they're being very safe about what they're putting out and they're trying yeah. to put out very it's like processed food. Right? It's very processed food. That's and a good way look, to I mean, think about it. Yeah. Sometimes it you know, tastes good and you have it. But <laughs> if, if that's your only your diet, it's not always the best thing. So right. I think it's challenging. And for, and for nowadays, there's a lot of really wonderful artists out there, but you have mm -hmm. to do so much work to find them and it's yeah. not easy and most people won't do that i mean i'm a full-time musician and it's really hard for me to do that i get mm. exhausted trying to find like the new artist i'm finding out yeah. a lot from other people now and some of my students and stuff so it's great but it's really hard i think for the average listener to do that so yes it's and a lot of modern artists are not being controversial or not like saying as much about mm. things are wrong whereas 30 years ago or, or plus mm. they were being a lot more vocal about like this is not you know this is not right. Let's let's wave the flag here and be like, let's hey, let's let's put, have some checks and balances, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, think about Bob Dylan, who yeah. was doing that really beautifully. Back to Rage Against the Machine, doing that in a way that was really powerful yep. and really direct and really yeah. calling people out. I mean, Tom Morello is still very active in that way. Oh, very much. His yeah. mother is too. She just turned a hundred or something, and she's really? this incredible activist. Yeah, really oh, that's cool. Awesome. Really cool lady. But yeah, we're we're seeing less and less of that, and in a way, I kind of understand because we're in, we live in this very polarized environment. And if you want to be successful in a traditional or sort of monetary sense, being authentic and speaking about some things that maybe matter feels like it's off limits, which which is very sad. But yeah. I think that's that's a little bit where we are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think that, you know, this is this is getting me to think a little bit more about how this influences the, the field of music therapy, because, again, it's this perfection based thing now. But, yeah, when you go back and you listen to these recordings with. It's like, I feel like give, I, give me shelter is coming up because mm -hmm. when Mary Clayton takes that solo, there's these huge cracks in her voice. Oh, yeah. But that's almost like that's when you get that kind of ache in your stomach about, yeah, oh, my it's gosh, emotion. it's raw. It's emotion. It's so human. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah and I, mean, I love that. And I feel like that's people don't even know that they're responding to that sometimes, but they are because it was such a direct commutative expression. And the same thing like. Nowadays, we think a lot of people are using auto-tune. Some people use it as an effect and whatever. That's cool. But some mm. people were using it to correct things they thought were bad. The problem with that is if we think of Billie Holiday, <laughs> so she intentionally sang at a tune a little bit. And I wouldn't call it out a tune. I would call it yeah. maybe more of awareness of, of the various gradients of, of a pitch. 
because it sure. gives different weight to a note and, and it could either make it sound a little more excited if you're sharp or maybe a little more somber if it's flat, right? Mm -hmm. right? And I think we're missing that now. So it's like, we're just yeah. looking at this one target note and being like, that's the note. And that right. that's not really true, nor is it for rhythm and quantizing rhythm all the time. You, know, right. you could play, have something at 120 BPM, mm -hmm. but if somebody is just slightly ahead of the beat, that feels a little more excited, like a little more caffeinated. Yeah, you know, or the, the opposite, or someone like John Bonham or Charlie Watts playing slightly behind the beat. Yeah. I mean... Feels when, a little heavier. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah, not or, just the volume or the tone of the drums or the instruments that's making that sound. It's also the way that they're they're living it. You know, it's right. like they're living that experience. And that's what you get from Mary Clayton and that's what you get from you know, Muddy Waters and mm -hmm. people like that. You get their their experience. You hear them having that experience in that moment. Yeah. And I think Billy Billy Holiday is a really good example because depending on who you you talk to it's not like a pretty technically perfect voice no but it's it's crunchy and it's raw and there's pain in it yeah but that was someone who was struggling i mean she's plagued with addiction and and racism oh, yeah. and was dealing with being a you woman know, in that time period be, yeah too, being like... a woman during that time period and then this musical commentary on the state of the country when it came to civil rights and race and being criticized for that. I mean, that is that there's life in that voice. That's there is. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And there's, there's so, I mean, again, Bob Dylan, not an aesthetically pleasing voice, but it's a voice that tells a story and there's yeah. some pain and there's some ache to that. Yeah. And you can, you can say that for a lot of, singers who have these kind of unusual voice. Amy mm -hmm. Winehouse is another right. great one. Yeah. Right. Kind of that like Leonard you know, Cohen. I mean there's a lot Leonard of Leonard Cohen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So to to get back onto what you were saying about the the three parts of the brain. Oh, so the yeah. hippocampus, right? So what was that what's the second part of the brain? So amygdala is the part of the brain that regulates our fear responses, our automatic responses, and it pairs memories with emotionally charged events. So this is what kind of connects the music with some sort of emotional experience. Uh, yeah, uh -huh. yeah. This is like, I remember this song. It brings back something that... Sort of related to, to memory, but it's, I, I guess, a decent example I could give is kind of like when we hear a song that kind of hits us in this way of like, oh, this is sad or this is bittersweet or this is, there's some sort of joy to this. Uh, uh -huh. it's, it's what connects music to emotion. Oh, okay. It's what okay, make, right, it helps right. us to feel and experience music as something that's not just an auditory experience. Uh -huh. It's a, it's a full um, emotional experience. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is so important because therapy is an emotional experience. Right. We need to be accessing those emotions, but, music is is so helpful in that because again like i was saying there is no you know, you know we don't have to be expressing just one single emotion at a time it's like we don't always feel one single emotion at a time so we're bringing all of these elements into the music mm -hmm. at once or if i'm working with someone and we're we're improvising and they're they're talking about how you know i have really low depressed mood you know, very low motivation, but there's also this sort of anxiety or this anxiety spiraling and their music has this kind of drags a little bit 
I can be the person that comes in and goes, there's this part of this emotion that you explained to me that's not showing up. So I can kind of represent the anxiety so we can have those things working together mm-hmm. at once and it be expressing that all at the same time. Yeah. Interesting. Can you unwrap that a little bit more? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You mean like talking about I I meant like so you're you're trying to in part of the improvisation this this goes back to the improvisation oh yeah you're trying to to as they're playing something slow you're trying to counter not counteract is the wrong word but you're trying to add to represent in sound the multiple layers that they're feeling at once yeah that can that can be one approach and it's one approach that I use often because that that's the one thing that's can be very confusing about mental health or some of the symptoms that we have. I think like that, that pairing of anxiety and depression, it's like this sort of like elevated state in this really, really low mood. Yeah. And right. some people are like, how could you have anxiety yeah, if you're depressed? Experiencing and- the two is confusing enough. And then expressing the two is, is, is also very confusing. Right. So it's almost like you're trying to reframe or recontextualize feeling. So it's not just something that's existing in the mind and body now. It's going to be this full auditory experience that we're having or this full emotional experience that we're having. So, you know, it's a two-person process Mm -hmm. I'm talking about if if I'm working with a client individually. So they might also say, or we might have this agreement that, okay, I want to represent the depression. You as my therapist, I kind of want you to represent my anxiety. And we're going to figure out how the anxiety and the depression communicate with each other and coexist or not coexist. Mm -hmm. This kind of goes hand in hand with transference, countertransference as well. So transference is kind of, how do I explain this in a way that's not going to get super confusing? (laughs) Because I feel like therapists get confused about this too. So transference is... The feelings that you would project onto your therapist as a patient. If, if you're my therapist, maybe I've had a, a past traumatic family experience with a, with a certain family member. And when I'm working with you, some of those feelings are coming up and I'm projecting that onto you. Or I'm mm-hmm. treating you a certain way based on my experiences I've had with this, this person. That we we can work we can use transference to our benefit. So oh right, because right because yeah. that's usually like oh, uh, that's where it's your traumatic experiences like can can be problematic in relationships sometimes because you're exactly reacting to somebody the way you reacted to the bad situation in your family. Yeah, even though they they haven't done anything like that, but it's just your response. Yeah. So sticking with that scenario, if I'm the patient, you're my and you're my music therapist. You might say to me, you know what? I want you, I I want us to have a dialogue as I'm this family member and you're you and we're going to have this kind of musical exchange Mm -hmm. and and work through this together. And that can be really interesting. And this is something that talk therapists do all the time. But to kind of, again, recontextualize and have a different means for expressing can also shake some other feelings up to the surface because music is such an emotional experience. Then it might be like, oh, and now this gives us so much more to process. I have these other feelings. I'm understanding it more um, because now it's not just something that exists in the mind and body. It's out in the open. So it makes them have the realization or come to terms. Sometimes with, it can. With, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. I had, I had an interesting experience with transference with a patient who is really sweet, very eager to express themselves creatively 
but there was this sort of disconnect that I saw in music therapy where they would come into group and would be very excited to be there. And it was almost this, like, I want to please, like I want to do what I can to, you know, to make sure everyone else in the room is having a good time, which is some of us do have, have these kind of people pleasing tendencies. It's, it's a pretty normal, common thing. And this person who I, I knew really enjoyed the process of being creative, I, I could tell they were kind of holding back and they'd taken this drum and it was, there was this like hesitance about like actually putting their hand to the drum and the music kind of stopped and it ended. And I think in this particular session, they initiated the end of the music in some way or kind of created this cutoff in, in a group setting. And I said, I stopped and, and I checked in and I said, what was the experience like? Do we have thoughts? Do we have insights? And this person was like kind of silent. And I said, what was your experience like? And they said, well, I didn't want to contribute much because I didn't want to screw up. Uh, and I was like, hmm. And in that moment, I, I kind of had a feeling it might have been a transference thing. And, and I asked, what, what makes you think that you were going to screw up. Oh, I, I don't know. I just, I, I didn't want to upset you if I screwed up. And that's like, ding, ding, ding. That's transference. So uh -huh. Uh -huh. I, I asked the question, have we had an experience in our therapeutic relationship in the past where I've made you feel like you've screwed up or have I made you feel that you weren't safe to, to express yourself musically? And they started to cry. And all of this came out about, you know, how their, their mother was an art teacher and any creative endeavor within the family system had to be good in order for it to be worth anything. So within our therapeutic relationship, she was, transferring her feelings about her mother onto me. Uh-huh. And that was a huge moment for us to right. go, all right, right, not only is this about working through this relationship with your mother, it's about giving yourself permission to enjoy the process of creating. It's about you changing your relationship with these creative endeavors. And it's about this emotional freedom. When there's a level of enmeshment, there's this attachment to her mother that's everything I do creatively has to be related to my mom in some way, or this mm -hmm. is how I stay connected to my mother. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was a really big opportunity for us to figure out how can we maybe now start working individually. It's so interesting to yeah. me because one of the things that just clicked in my brain about mm -hmm. that story was like, it probably... Well, I don't know. I, I would have to defer to you about this, but it seems like it would be harder to get that out of somebody just by directly asking them or conversing with them. And here they had an experience where it naturally just bubbled up and mm -hmm. then it, all of a sudden then the door was open yeah. and it could kind of come out in that way. Like you, it, it sounds to me like, which I never thought of before, even somebody picking up an instrument in a group setting can say so much in a short period of time about them or what they might be carrying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is kind of an example I like to use a lot, too, about why creative arts therapy can be so beneficial or music therapy specifically is that when we talk about things, we have ways of kind of making it seem like everything's fine. Even if 
you come home from work and your your partner or your family member says, how was, how was everything today? Uh, kind of a terrible day, but I'm fine. We have these ways of of talking our ourselves. Sure, I mean, out that's of pretty planted like, in this in society, and especially amongst yeah. women, because it was always like women can't have opinions or they're not mm-hmm. supposed to say like they any, yeah. everything's not great, you know. Yeah. It's like, and there are the people who sort of over intellectualize. So people who are deeply intelligent have these incredible vocabularies. You can go into talk therapy and kind of like around the presenting issue <laughs> yeah. without ever getting to the center of it. Uh-huh. And music is so emotionally based and the creative arts are in so many ways that these things kind of just get shaken to the top and it's like, okay, now it's here and we have to work through it. Uh-huh. Whereas if you're in talk therapy, you can go, people do this a lot of times when they're talking about family relationships or relationships with their parents where I think, is it is it Bowlby who has like the... I could be wrong. I think it's Bowlby who has the whole theory about good or bad child, good parent, where mm. people will do whatever they can to talk about how great their parents were, even if they like abused them mm-hmm. growing up. Cause it's like, there has to be a reason my parents were mean to me. And it has to be that like, I was bad. Right, people right, can kind right. of like talk around that. Like, yeah, I'm like, I've heard people say, well, my, my parents hit me. They physically put their hands on me as a kid, but you know, I, I was bad sometimes and they only did it when I was really bad. And sometimes that experience comes or those emotions relating to that experience come up in music therapy where it's like now there's no turning back and there's no talking our, our way out of it because right. it's here. The emotions are here and they've come forward in a way that now we have to work through them. Uh-huh. Yeah. Wow, that's fascinating. I never it makes complete yeah. sense to me. Yeah, but I think it wasn't something I ever realized until you start talking. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's really been my experience in it, or people who are really, really shut off and don't have a lot to share, but there's some But they do, they're there. just not yeah. coming forward with it. Yeah, they don't have right? a lot to share verbally, but there's right. so much that can come up emotionally in the music. Amazing. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Okay, so the third part of the... Yeah, third part I want to talk about is the nucleus nucleus accumbens. So it's the internal reward system. It's what releases this dopamine when we have pleasant experiences. And music is something that can result in these releases of dopamine. So when we're engaging in a music therapy experience, we might have, you know, these really good rewarding feelings, which can make the therapy feel sort of worth it in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Therapy's tough. It can be excruciating. There are weeks where I have my own, my I, I go to talk therapy once a week, and it's like, I really don't want to be here. Really don't want to be here. And sometimes but, it takes several sessions to feel like yeah, you've worked through something. right? Absolutely. But, you know, there are those moments where it's like, oh, okay, I got it. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to start working through this. And that's kind of like that, that, that internal reward system kicks in. Because music is something that can result in that release in dopamine when we listen to music or engage in some sort of music experience that gives you these kind of like feel-good chemicals. So when you're engaging in music therapy, as difficult as some of the emotions might be to deal with, it's like, okay, there might be that little hit a dopamine that gets you through it where right. it's like, okay, this is, this is a form of therapy that I can, I can actually enjoy and be, be healing and optimizing. Right, so I went to health. that, that place I didn't want to go to, but then also like yeah. I felt 
I got a little 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 kick, a little buzz from it. Yeah, it yeah, yeah. And there's there's probably more research about this, but I'm just kind of talking about more the brain structures and the way that music relates to that. And there's I mean several other structures of the brain. I just didn't want to get too technical, but mm-hmm. these are the three that I think are really worth talking about when mm-hmm. we talk about music therapy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when you're you're dealing in group settings, so you probably you have a, a mixture of people with different sort of symptoms, right? So are you using like the same sort of techniques to help people? Let's say we're talking about three different parts of the brain. So yeah, places where, where it could affect the brain. Are you, are you treating it pretty universally? Like, so there are people in the room and you're using the musical improvisation and you're working with them and, it, and it's helping people that are in very different places. Or do you have specific techniques that are styles of music or things that you do to say deal with anxiety and depression versus say another? Yeah, I, I'm very humanistic in my approach to therapy. So I'm, I'm, my, my approach is always to meet the patient where they're at and, and do what I can to reflect mood and emotion through music or give them the space to do that. Um, in a group setting, that's hard because you can have people who are experiencing a range of different things, (laughs) but how long is a therapy session for a group? About an hour. About an hour. Yeah, yeah, we'll do like an hour at a time. If I mean, there are, there are some people who definitely benefit, and you don't want anyone to slip through the cracks in group therapy. So I may meet with them individually, but I'm always listening and kind of tracking, okay, what is going on? Even looking at people's body language. And it's what I found in my experience, a really good indication of someone not being very present is this kind of like passive tapping on the instrument Uh, where it's like, Oh, okay. This is someone who maybe needs to be brought into the music a little bit more. So making that eye contact and sometimes like giving them that like basic downbeat, uh you know, can like that strong downbeat. It's a way of kind of inviting them in Uh and giving them an opportunity to, express right and if it's someone who said to me or prior to the session who said this is how i'm feeling today taking that and looking at their body language and taking all of that into account and kind of reflecting that musically how do i reflect mood in in music and a good example of this which is going to sound kind of wacky is mr rogers neighborhood okay <laughs> so if you listen to the music i think what a great documentary too Oh my God. I was an amazing guy bawling minutes into that. It was a little ridiculous. Oh yeah. My mom's from Western PA. So like Pittsburgh people, they go crazy for their Mr. Rogers. Yeah. He's, he's from Pittsburgh. But I think the, the pianist name who worked for that show, I think his name is Johnny Costa. I could be totally wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's his name. Fred Rogers was an amazing musician. I I think he went to school for music, but he was someone in with the kind of music team for that show was so beautifully able to match and represent mood through music. And I, as a music therapist, if I need that kind of reminder of like, this is how to really do it. I'm, I'm watching old episodes, Mr. Yeah. Rogers neighborhood. And I'll tell people that if you want to really understand what that means to match mood with music, that's the way to go. Um, the way that, there's these kind of darker representations when he's talking about these really difficult subjects. I mean, he was the first 
person to talk about assassination and divorce on children's television. So there's a lot of heavy stuff there. Mm -hmm. But music, again, serves as this container for it and this representation of it. And yeah, I, I encourage a lot of music therapists that are starting out. I'm like, watch a couple episodes of Mr. Rogers. Mm-hmm. It gives yeah, you what that. a beautiful soul. Like, really oh, was tapped into a, a bigger awesome. picture and bigger picture and just really sort of understood in some ways what, what children needed. I mean, what everybody needs. Yeah. But definitely, I think, as some of the behaviors that have been set up in society that they think that they're protecting children, they're not really protecting children. Right. In the sense of, like, educating them about they see, they know, they're smarter than, than yeah. people sometimes like to believe that they are. Oh, they're just a kid. Yeah. You need to touch on these subjects. I mean, if that was so brilliant to him to find ways to be like, this is, they know this is going on as the assassination happened or whatever happened in the news. Yeah. Like, you have to address it to them. Because- Absolutely. Yeah, there's like a really brilliant segment from early, early Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Because this, yeah, this would have been 1968. It was after the, after Bobby Kennedy was assassinated where it's Daniel Tiger and Lady, well, whoever it was, <laughs> Lady Aberlane, is that her name? Yeah. And they're having this discussion. And it, it's essentially a discussion about how people grieve in different ways. Right. She's oh. like, I'm going to have a picnic with friends. And he's like, and I need to stay here and be alone and I'll see you when you come back. And Oh, that's, yes, I remember yeah. that. Yeah. But it's, and it's this thing that we don't always, especially now, I mean, we see kids who are, have and adults even who were kind of pacified by these devices and things like that Mm -hmm. it he was really able to show people how to access their emotions Mm -hmm. and talk about them and then the music component you know is even a, a bigger piece of it but that being said i think with people who grow up in families where talking about your emotions isn't really something that you do or if you're in a bad mood go to your room and come out when you feel better. It can be difficult to go to talk therapy because it's like, I've never spoken about my feelings before. How do you expect me to do it now? Oh yeah. So having a nonverbal way of expressing that a nonverbal form of psychotherapy is huge. It's, it's an amazing thing. Gives these people the sort of freedom to go, Oh, I don't have to talk about it. We might talk about it as a way of processing what happened in the music, but that doesn't need to be the primary. Yeah, they don't have to for... present it. They don't have to walk in and be like, I'm presenting you with what, yeah. what I'm thinking about or what I'm feeling. Yep. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's such a gateway. Yeah. And and when I say creative arts therapy too, I mean, there's, there's music therapy, there's art therapy, there's drama therapy, and there's dance and movement therapy. It's all under this creative arts therapy umbrella, which is pretty amazing that we have all these different ways of working yeah i mean long overdue like i'm I'm just thinking of so many people that this can help Uh, so i mean you're 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 dealing a lot now you're working at the hospital and there's a lot of you're also i know you have some privates too as well right so i am in the process of um completing my hours to become a licensed creative arts therapist in new york state So pretty soon I'll be working for a private practice. I've done some onboarding stuff, which is really exciting. So it gives me a chance to do some more individual psychotherapy work as opposed to the hospital, which is just groups. So I'll be having that. Yeah, so we can talk about the individual uh, patients for a second. So how does somebody 
who is a good candidate for musical therapy? Like if, if somebody is listening and, and they are realizing that maybe they need to, to or they, they need, need to see, seek some help and have some guidance, who, mm-hmm. who is a good candidate to, to seek some you out or seek somebody like you out? Yeah. So, I mean, we're here for everybody. And like I was saying earlier, it's such an accessible form of therapy. I think that we really want to create the space for anybody who is, who is interested in it. I will often say to people, if you're someone who has been in traditional talk psychotherapy maybe for a while and it just feels like maybe I need to try something different, maybe this isn't, maybe I'm not getting to the core of what's going on and I want to try a different approach, music therapy or creative arts therapy can be a great thing to, to seek out and at least try, might, might be a really, really good fit. Again, I mentioned language processing disorders. Mm. What is that exactly? Language processing disorders are basically when it's difficult to understand what someone is saying to you or comprehending it fully or forming sentences and coming up with with certain words. I'm probably not explaining that very well. But any sort sort of language processing disorder, I would say that because you're not relying strictly on on verbal language creative arts therapy can be a really good approach as well also that being said for people who have had strokes for people who've had traumatic brain injuries music therapy can actually help heal the brain so oliver sacks has spoken about this he wrote the book musicophilia he was a um, neuroscientist who worked at columbia for years and became a huge advocate for music therapy because he was really seeing the way that it was impacting people's brains. But so if you're someone who has had a traumatic brain injury, you may be working with a music therapist in a hospital because if you damage that left part of the brain where there's that speech and language portion of the brain, music actually has the potential to create a new speech and language center on the undamaged right hemisphere of the brain wild. Yeah. Yeah. But also music can be, it can, be a little bit easier uh, for someone who may have um, some issues due to stroke or TBI or things like that. Gabby Giffords is a great example. She's the reason that I got into the field. She was not able to, or she kind of hit a plateau with speech therapy. And then when she started music therapy, was singing full songs and able to. Wow, I didn't know that. So that can be a really great, really amazing thing for people that that are struggling in that way. Yeah, and I I think creatives as well. Sometimes it can be difficult for people who are who are creative to come into a creative arts therapy setting because again, it's that kind of value thing. Is my or music or art or dance or how I express myself has to be good in order for it to be worth anything. Um, if you can kind of work uh, independently as well as with your 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 therapist to find a way to think of um, the arts and the way that you practice um, art in a different way. I think that can be really, really helpful. I think it also kind of helps us as artists too. I mean, becoming a music therapist has helped me to really rethink how I work as just a musician. Oh, totally. I mean, yeah. there's a couple of things that really helped me with that because I came, I have a, a, a long story about, I came from a very toxic music relationship, family, and a lot of complicated stuff. But 
one of the things that helped me out in a lot of it was a lot of judgment stuff that you're talking about, like heart, like it was really hard. So I, I just, it would have, I feel like it could have broken me from music, but I just had such a desire for music that somehow it survived past that. Yeah. It took me a long time though, to get past some of the hurdles. I still made music, I came to New York City and then started a career here. And I got past a lot of the stuff, but I, it took me a long time to get past the creative side of it because it was also connected to creativity and where it was. And so it really was hard. And one, a couple of things, well, Abby, my wife, really helped me immensely with that and getting me to therapy, which helped me immensely. Amazing. And some of the things I got into eventually was a composing for film and TV. And I would have to do a lot of stuff where I'd, I was composing cues for television shows, but you have to, oh, wow. a lot of them. So I was yeah. writing like, I don't know, over 150 pieces of music a year or something like that. So it was a lot. And some of them I would spend time on and they'd be great. And then some, I just need to get something in because they need to they give me 24 hours deadline. You mm -hmm. have to submit something in this time. Okay, I'm just going to put something together to be an idea and put it out the door. Mm -hmm. And I'd make it good, but sometimes there's just different levels of like, I don't know, what, what expectations are or just kind of following through ideas to the end, no matter mm -hmm. what you think they are and not judging them early on. Mm -hmm. That really helped a lot because I just started just looking at it as also like, well, this is an experience. What, what good or bad? I don't know. Some things I'm going to end up preferring more than others, but there's not a difference in value. The worst thing I write is actually just as valuable as the best thing I write. I love that. Yeah. And it really got into that mindset. And I think another thing that helped too is when I started getting into more atonal music is mm -hmm. we sometimes what's happening now, it feels like we're living on this grid and this grid is, is, is getting even more strict and strict. If you hear mm -hmm. a lot of popular music, there's not modulations. There's not a lot, mm -hmm. like it's pretty like just repetitive and very, mm -hmm. oh, sometimes would say limited. Sometimes it's not because that's the point, but sometimes it's, it's not <clears> expansive <throat> that way. Right. So yeah. it seems like a lot more that people can say that things are right or wrong with the thing I like about a tonal experimentation, early electronic, music or mm -hmm. things that like Delia Derbyshire or the BBC Radiophonic Workshop or uh, some of the like Pandoreski or some of the composers were doing it being very experimental and some of it was what the, what the term allotheric, I'm still getting used to that term, but like <laughs> the music of John Cage, which is like, like chance music, mm -hmm. which means that you set up some parameters and John Zorn does this too, where you set up some parameters, but how it gets interpreted is going to be completely different. Mm -hmm. So you could do these noise like experimentation improvisations where mm -hmm. key and timing doesn't matter but expression matters mm -hmm. so it may be completely dissonance but dissonance has a place too so everything can't just be tonal and perfect harmony all the time because if there's no tension there's no release right and so the idea of creating and using a lot of these ugly tones is really kind of fascinating because you could actually when you're working with people and, and you throw out all those boundaries of of what a time signature or a key signature is and everybody's listening to each other naturally and just trying to find like these tension and release points, but they're all dependent on each other. And there's not really a system of being like good or bad. Some may come out more pleasing than others, but still there's not, it's not really that, that there's not something that people can say, well, this is what makes this mm -hmm. great per se. Yeah. And that's so representative of the human experience too, in the way that we experience emotion. Yeah. Right. I right. mean, there has to be dissonance. There has to be some really messy ugly, difficult It's just stuff. like talking about how anger yeah. and rage, that's a part of our human experience. Yeah. And just like dissonance is a, mm -hmm. as a part of the sound of the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think if, if we want to truly understand 
why music therapy is valuable and how music and emotion are linked, we need to start listening to music with more of a critical ear. Not and we're going to pull it apart as far as music theory goes and understand that, but asking the questions of what was this person going through in order for them to create something like this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have a big old soft spot in my heart for Jaco Pastorius. Mm-hmm. Very special to me. I like feel it sounds very crunchy, very hippy dippy, but I feel I have some sort of cosmic connection to Jocko career wise and getting into my work in psychiatry and all of that. And he had bipolar one rapid cycling. So he was going through these episodes of mania and depression one after the other, after the other, like days to weeks of each instead of weeks to months, which is what you are typically seeing in a traditional presentation of bipolar. And his first album is really tight everything's really good technically speaking i think sam and dave sing on it i mean it's really amazing like soul jazz fusion album and then his second solo album you can almost hear and feel the mania Mm -hmm. in a way that is like nothing else and it's heartbreaking listening to it there's, he does a, a cover of Blackbird by the Beatles. Oh, yeah. And Blackbird, we all know, is this really soothing, really sentimental, sort of bittersweet song. And there's this sort of, you know, almost lullaby quality to it. And the way that Jocko decided to arrange that piece, it's jarring to listen to. Huh. And it's like, this is someone who is in pain. Mm-hmm. This is someone who is in pain, and you almost listen to this as it's so vulnerable. It's mm-hmm. so vulnerable, and you know this. You think about it's an it's an instrumental version of the piece, but you you think about the lyrics and the message of the song, and it's like take these broken wings and learn to fly. And he was he was struggling. Like he wasn't he, at this point. He wasn't really working. Mm-hmm. He was barely getting himself off the ground. And it was this, you listen to that piece, and I think it is really a testament to how emotional music can be and how music can convey emotion. Right, it's like a a window into his life at that moment. Oh, absolutely. And that's another thing. If someone is in the middle of a manic episode and they have this very pressured speech, or even someone who's maybe a little bit more psychologically disorganized dealing with something like schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder, it can be very difficult for them to express what's happening verbally, Mm -hmm. to organize their thoughts in that way. But music doesn't require you to organize a sentence verbally. Mm. You can kind of spill everything out into the open, and that gives me an idea of, okay, here's what we're dealing with, and here's what I need to do to help. It's interesting. It's almost like it's like you're saying there's less of a filter, yeah, for yeah, it coming really. out. Like when you have speech, you're just, you're contemplating a lot, like what you're saying mm-hmm. or how you're going to direct it, or yeah. or how much you want to take parts out. But yeah. if you're sometimes with music, you're able to just mm-hmm. let it be it, its full expression more. Yeah, huh. yeah, yeah. I I think in in some ways that that can definitely be true. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, what was interesting before you were talking about too is that that who when we were talking about who might be a good candidate for music therapy, yeah. and you were saying if, for people that 
maybe they've done talk therapy for a while and it hasn't been working. It's really interesting because it goes back to what I think I feel one of the failures of the the educational system, at least the mainstream educational mm-hmm. system. And I don't know about the rest of the world, but at least I feel like in America is that they have this one size fits all mentality. Mm-hmm. And I didn't do so well in school. Uh, it turns out I really like learning a mm-hmm. lot, but I, I didn't prosper there. I have a eyesight disability and I'm deaf in one ear. Oh, so wow. it was, they didn't know what to do with me there. And it was mm. in the 80s. So they, especially Awful. at that time, they didn't yes. know. So it was kind of, it was harder to learn in that environment because also you don't want to be the odd person out because then it'd be like the person that's different. Mm-hmm. And sure. there were a lot of things that were hard about that. So I didn't prosper in that environment. And I think that also that system for the way that my brain works, it wasn't the best for me. When I, I dropped out of high school and then I got my GED, but I studied music mostly on my own Mm. and then I started studying with mentors and people that taught me all classical uh, training and all all stuff like that Mm. jazz uh, um, theory and that all of a sudden like I'm absorbing so much and just adapting to that environment in a completely different way than I did when I was in school but I was I felt like for a while that like well school doesn't work for me I I, Mm. learning that way doesn't work for me in fact it does a lot I'm constantly learning now it's just that system didn't, right? So, I mean, I feel like one thing we have to get past is this idea, whether it's in modern medicine or it's in education, is that it's not, the one way just doesn't work. There's not there's not this idea that everybody's not the same person or have the same experience or don't right. process things the same way. So mm-hmm. people can try something and it cannot work for them. It doesn't mean that they can't get help if they've gone to talk therapy, right? And they've been through it and, mm-hmm. and it didn't work for them. It doesn't mean that therapy doesn't work. It means that maybe they didn't find the the, the, the passageway in that, that connects with them. Exactly. Yeah. And going back to what I said at the beginning, I do a lot of comparison to like, this is how talk therapy might work or not work. This is how music therapy might work or not work. Everything that the therapy world has to offer is so valuable in so many different ways. But exactly. There are people where this CBT, DBT model might not work. There are people where psychoanalysis might not work for them. And that it's so important to have these other these other options. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you were to go in for some sort of treatment for cancer or something and they were to say, and a lot of times it's like, here's your only option. But typically people will say, OK, you have these three options. It's nice to know you at least have options. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it's been a really hard thing to do that with, with mental health. I feel like it's it's almost like, and, and maybe this isn't the best comparison to make, <laughs> throwing that out there, but it's almost like buying weed in the 90s. You know what I mean? It's like you had to know somebody maybe that knew somebody and then yeah. you could, you'd have to go in somewhere and not be seen when you're going to get it. And it was just like this sort of covert, like underground thing. Yeah. And it almost feels like like the fact that I don't even know much about music therapy is is uh, that just baffles me why it, everybody isn't it's not an option first of all for everybody and, and everybody doesn't know that there's different types of therapy and therapy is just accessible for everybody right yeah i mean what you're saying about mental health is so true it's such a stigmatized thing and again i do talk to my patients about this because maybe they're not having a, a a specific symptom that that requires working through but a lot of them have these feelings of like I've had people come to group and go, I have to call my sister and tell her I've been in the hospital for two weeks and I can't do it. That's that's 
probably has something to do with family dynamic, but it has a lot to do with the stigma as well. Right. It should not be this hard for people to get help. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah, it shouldn't be this hard for people to know what options they have. And that's why I'm doing things like this, having mm-hmm. this discussion with you, talking to to some college classes. I'm talking especially to people who aren't therapists. Like I did the, I, I think the lecture that I sent to you was for a group of physicians assistant students oh. because it's like, yeah, they, they will maybe be referring people to music therapists within right. the medical model. Always want to say when I, when I talk about my profession is that there are ways for <laughs> all of us as therapists within this field to work together. Mm -hmm. Um, I had an exchange with a therapist once um, who said to me, well, there's so many things that you can't do that we can because you're a creative arts therapist. And I kind of said, well, and vice versa. I mean, there are, there are limitations to, to everything upsides and downsides to everything. Yeah. Like who says you're trying to replace it? You're not, exactly. you're just trying to add, there's add no, an addition and an accompaniment as an, an option. Yeah. yeah. There's room for everybody at the table. There has yeah. to be room for everybody at the table. If we want to reach as many people as we can and provide services to as many people as we can. Yeah. And what's worth mentioning too, is that, so creative arts therapists, there, there is the LCAT license, licensed creative arts therapist mm-hmm. license in New York state. By law, we are now considered psychotherapists, which is great. It's awesome. So you can have private practice. This is all master's level, considering that you've completed your your certain number of, of hours and, and um, passed the, the board certification exam. Yeah. So that's what I'm doing right now. I'm completing my hours to become an LCAT. There was a... There was a law or some sort of legislation that was put in front of the, the state of New York to have anyone who's considered a psychotherapist in New York State be eligible to be covered by private insurance. So that means psychoanalysts, clinical social workers, maybe not, I'm, I'm forgetting right now, but there's a group of four of us, creative arts therapists being one of them. There, there were four. Yeah. Creative arts therapy was redlined by the governor at the last minute. Which governor was this? This was this was Hochul or Hochul, Hochul, right? Nice. Yeah. yeah. That was very disappointing. Yeah. And it was a little bit of a slap in the face and kind of was like, it. I don't believe in any way that it impacts the legitimate, legitimacy of creative arts therapy, but it could be perceived that way by other people. Sure. And it's, it's about us in some ways, but it's about the people that we serve. Absolutely. We're living in times I'm feeling and actually historically don't know, uh, uh, <clears throat> I guess, about the overall mental state of society, but I feel like the times that we're living in now with social media, with being inundated and seeing such graphic images on a regular basis, which obviously we need to know what's going on in the world, but it's, it's, there's a lot of bad things happening all the time mm-hmm. and it's hard to emotionally process. I mean, things that we mm-hmm. see going on in the Middle East right now, things that happened in Maine last night. There's so many things <sighs> at any given time that we're seeing really hard things to digest mm-hmm. or just even just the way that social media lights up our brain and, and yeah. kind of affects and amplifies a lot of our own insecurities or self-judgments. And it's we're carrying around a lot that's 24-7 now. I remember being younger and like cable TV would 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 shut off at like one in the morning or something. Mm-hmm. Or there was just times where like things didn't, wasn't 24-7. I didn't get texts at one in the morning about a gig or work or something or being expected to respond then you just didn't call people after 11 at night unless they're like your really close friend and yeah they yeah. answered the phone really quick before mm-hmm. anybody else woke up like mm-hmm. you just you didn't and now it's just like 
connected 24 seven at all times. Like you didn't, you didn't respond to my text in two minutes. What's going on? Yeah. yeah. Like, and it, it's a lot of pressure. And I feel like there's a lot of, uh, I, I imagine people are, are emotionally affected in so many ways. They don't even, they might not even be aware. Mm -hmm. I feel like we're living in a time where what we need, we need more therapy. We need more outlets for people to maybe kind of decompress and kind of come to terms with whatever their, their experience is, mm -hmm. like just even on a day-to-day -day level for what we're all experiencing together. You know? Yeah. And, and like what, what you're saying, you know, the doom and gloom of the world is so accessible because we see it on our phones and yeah. we're exposed to all the stuff and it's important for us to know. Mm -hmm. But if all of this dark stuff is so accessible, mental health resources need to be as accessible as that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There needs to be something as easily accessible to counteract and help us work through the emotions that yeah, know, are like a result why, of why that. Why are these practices not even implemented into our educational system mm -hmm. so that people, children grow up understanding that, that you can just, you, you, you don't have to be in a crisis to have, therapy help you through various emotional things because we all go through despair and and different mm -hmm. things in our lives right like i always feel like growing up like we're never really given the skills to how to even deal with that or how to seek help to deal with that you're not always supposed to have the answers yourself but it's also you're ashamed into not seeking help for those answers yeah i mean this is quite a dark example but one that i think is is really incredible i believe her name is susan claybold she's the mother of one of the columbine shooters actually she's come forward in the past several years to to talk about her story and one of the things that she said that has really stuck with me is that when she was parenting her kids she said she always put an emphasis on here's how we take good care of our bodies and here's how we maintain a healthy body. And she goes, I just wish I'd spoken about having a healthy brain mm -hmm. and taking care of your brain. Yeah. And the amount of guilt and shame that has to be associated with what has happened in her life and the harm that her son caused mm -hmm. and the lives that he took is unbelievable. But to hear that from someone in such extreme circumstances to say it's not about just physical health yeah as parents there has to be an emphasis on you also have to take care of your emotions absolutely yeah yeah and we throw out this term normal too like mm -hmm. this idea that there's two channels right you're the normal or you're not normal it's like yeah. what does that even mean yeah right and and yeah that i mean i i didn't grow up with any of that and i don't know if I don't even know how many people are now, but it's, it, it is a point that it's, it's probably one of the greatest things you can instill in people is, mm -hmm. is the, the healthy mind stuff, how to, yeah. like, I know some schools are starting to include meditation and, and some things in the program, but yeah, mindfulness, but yeah. it's still like, I felt like knowledge of that when I was growing up, like could have been helpful. Just, there's so many like basic life things that we skip and I don't call them basic because it's, I would say fundamental life things that yeah. are skipped a lot uh, when we're dealing with children and then we grow up and we don't have the skills. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was, I, I, was a mu I was a music therapist at a preschool for a while. And that was an interesting experience because of course it, with that age group, you're working a little bit on fine and gross motor skills and, and learning and learning through music can be like you're absorbing a lot all at the same time. But I also tried to use it as an opportunity to help these kids feel their full range of emotions. Mm -hmm. 
it was really interesting to see. And I felt proud to kind of be helping to instill that at age three to five. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's okay to show your full spectrum of feelings, right? Yeah. But certainly going like, go sit and time out isn't always effective. I mean, there's right. most of the time there's a reason why a child is acting. Yeah. Way. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Let's not fix this. Let's just send you over there and just yeah. tell you that this is not, this is not natural to have this feeling. Yeah. Know, or give yeah. you the skills of how to like deal with it next time if you're feeling this way or to adjust. Right? Yeah. I, I found too, you would have kids who were just having really bad days. I mean, super cranky, super tired. I mean, four hours at school is hard. Mm-hmm. I get through four hours at work and I'm like, <laughs> yeah. I feel you. I'm yeah, ready yeah, for totally, now. Yeah. But during the, I, there would be these moments where like a kid would have a meltdown or kind of like give you this attitude and kind of switching into like the relative minor of what you were playing in and kind of reflecting that. And it was kind of like that minor key. They were like, oh. Yeah. Oh, someone gets it. Yeah, you know what yeah. I'm talking about. Like yeah. I'm, I'm three and I might not have the language to be like, I'm going through I have it right it in my now. Heart, though. I have know. it in my heart. Right. And this music is like, all right, okay. Yeah. I, I mean, that was, I, I loved that about that job. Well, that's such an interesting, yeah. also different perspective to think about is like just that idea that you can actually communicate with children on an, they're probably so much more emotionally sophisticated than their language allows them to be. So you can actually tap into that to them and communicate with them on a level that they can't verbally yeah. or know how to express ver- so uh, socially verbally, right? Yeah, again, like back to Fred Rogers, the, yeah, music, yeah. the music kind of informs the way that emotion is spoken about and handled wow. on that show. I mean, and it's, it's, it's part of everything, like even yeah. like the trolley coming down the tracks. Right, right. You know, it, it supplements all of these different, like, phases of the day and what's happening yeah. and the way that we communicate with others and there's music associated with each person and the relationship with each person and right yeah because right. it, it adds that extra emotion and, and gives us more means of, of connecting and it's yeah huh. pretty amazing it's so fascinating yeah. well i don't want to keep you longer i know you've had a long day and it's been really fascinating but is there anything else you would like to add before we wrap Ooh. Well, thank you for having me. I'm I'm Pleasure. always so happy when I get to do this and and advocate for my work. Oh, yeah, thanks for being um, patient for my my inexperience. I was this is great so though. Much on my I own. mean, I think that's the that's the one thing that I I want to add. I mean, there's there's so many assumptions about music therapy, and we assume a lot of things. We make assumptions about a lot of things. But I think just asking. I'm I'm always happy to answer questions and provide support and education about what we do. And, you know, I always want to encourage people to, you know, please, please, please take very good care of your mental health. Um, it's a very important thing. And as far as mental health goes and the way that we care for people in America, we have a lot of work to do. Um, and I go to work every day with that in the back of my mind and that's motivation for me to be the best therapist I can. I just want to encourage people to express themselves and um, work through their lived experiences in ways that feel authentic to them. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. And there's people that are are willing to help. Yeah. So you can always seek help. I I could just tell, I mean, it's just, you're you're so um, willing to listen I imagine that you're a phenomenal um, a therapist. There's just an openness Thank to you, you and a, a willingness to to be patient. And you're 
a lot of the things you were just talking about observing your the levels that you're you're at to be able to observe talking about watching people's body language or like you're you're paying attention every second when you're in these sessions i could just i could tell that you're like that and and that's a very admirable because that's that's i imagine that's a that's a deep level that you have to get to to be able to put yourself aside that much to be living in that moment to be paying attention so much to the needs of of other people and that's very admirable thank you thank you Thank, and I hope to I hope to follow up again when you when you after you get your your license feel free to let me know I will give contact information on the show so if people want to come in and have a consultation or or seek therapy from you will you be accepting eventually like eventually uh-huh. at some point but always with contact info uh-huh. always love to have these conversations and open right. up communication about music therapy and what we do so always be willing to, to shoot, there, uh, shoot an email uh, my uh, way. Yeah. Is there um, a website or any place that people, if they want to reach out or have questions about music therapy or references about seeking music therapy, is there a place that they can contact? Yeah. So best um, email to reach me at is Sophie Woods musician, S O P H I E W O D S musician at gmail.com. Great. Yeah. Oh, and just to share a bit of literature for people who are, so excited to read <laughs> more about this. Musicophilia by Oliver Sacks is a great book, more about music neuroscience and music in the brain. Two books by Ken Brucia, Defining Music Therapy and Music Psychotherapy. Um, Breakthroughs with Music Therapy is actually available on YouTube. It was a Kennedy Center um, thing. Kennedy Center is really big on funding music therapy and advocating. And Music Therapy Handbook by Barbara Wheeler is awesome. And then my brain, my Music in the Brain spreadsheet, which was kind of like what I was sharing information with you from, I have that. So if anyone ever wants to reach out, I can share that. And Oh, that's great. Yeah. Would you share that with me? Because I'd like to know that yes, too. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I think yeah. this is, I'm definitely going to include this conversation with all my, I, I teach at SUNY Purchase as well. I'm a oh, professor no there, way. So. Okay, cool. I'm awesome. going to, this is, I feel like something I should talk to with all of my students and, Please. and, and all my private students and stuff as well. So, yeah. um, and have them reach out. I'm always down to, to chat about this. I love what I do and I want to share yeah. that with people. Yeah. Right. Well, cool. thank you, Sophie. Yeah. Thank yeah. you so much. Thank you for joining me for episode 23 of the Anatomy of Tone podcast. Join me next week where I will discuss the solo Dallas storm pedal, which is based on the early Schaefer wireless units that Angus Young and many others, including Van Halen, used as a, a pretty important part of their guitar tone. Particularly, it's the back in black ACDC sound, SG, Schaefer wireless unit into a Marshall Plexi. It does something very specific and I'll get into the details about it. It's one of those special ingredient pedals that really does something unique to your tone that I've never been able to accomplish with any other piece of gear. I hope everyone has a great week.